Hey everybody, this is AJ. And Amanda. This is our third and final uh, lesson in the Wild Beast uh, series that we've been talking about. And this one is probably one of my favorites. So buckle up, get ready, because this is going to be a fun discussion while everybody is sitting around in their homes during COVID-19. Hopefully everybody is doing well, nobody's sick, and you are not losing your minds right now. If you are, get outside, get some vitamin D, make sure you're legal, make sure you're staying six feet apart, all that good stuff, whatever your local authorities are telling you to do. All right, so this is the final lesson in this series, and as I said in the last episode, I'm going to be talking about... Um, a new series starting after this one called The Day of the Lord. Um, it's going to be focused on some things that are, I guess, in time in nature, but I think it's something that needs to be discussed and something that is very relevant to right now. So be on the lookout for that. Without further ado, I'm going to jump right into Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 27, and this might seem like a little bit of a strange scripture to read in the context of what we've been discussing, but it will all make sense as we go through this. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, Ephesians 5, without going into a big doctrinal discussion here, because it's not our focus, but it's showing us a type of model between husbands and wives, uh, the highest ministry, I believe, uh, that we see is the first ministry that we see in Genesis. We've been discussing a lot of this. This whole thing started in Genesis with a husband and wife in a garden. And if you've listened to the first two episodes, you see that that was the the first calling, the first ministry, the first, um, first thing we've seen was not a church. It was not a building. It was a home and it was a man and a woman. And Paul is no doubt, as a student of the, the Torah, he is, a lot of theologians believe he had it committed to memory, no doubt had Genesis on his mind when he's saying this, and he's jump-starting this whole Genesis relationship that's gotten all messed up throughout time because of the Satan, all of that, and he is showing that the marriage is a direct reflection of what's going on in this new kingdom that Jesus came to fix and get us into. So we're seeing that, uh, and I know I'm taking a little bit of time here because I think it's important because this is going to be the whole basis of the lesson. Um, when I'm, as an evangelist going from church to church, one thing that I'm doing when I'm trying to discern the, the, um, the church that I'm at, I'm looking at it as a bride and I'm comparing it 
to my wife, actually. Um, I'm constantly looking and I'm seeing how the church is acting as a body of believers to uh, headship, to Christ, to leadership, different things like that, to one another, because the Bible says we're submitted one towards another. Right. And I'm seeing how this this family of people, if they're working in comparison, I'm, I'm comparing it to my marriage. And I can see things that are off. I can see things that are that are doing well. And I'm constantly discerning it. And I'm using the gift of of marriage, what God has given me at home. Um, and this is what Paul is no doubt doing. He's like, hey, wives, look at your husbands. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's saying your home is a model of this whole kingdom thing. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Again, I'm not going to get into a long doctrinal thing. Obviously, if you have an abusive husband, the scripture is not condoning you to submit to an abusive husband because that goes over other scriptures. I feel like I have to put that in there. but Yeah, I mean, if you really want to hash it out, send an email. Yeah. That's not the context of this podcast, so feel free to move on. But listen to this. The husbands have just as hard of a job. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should be willing to lay down their lives for their wives. And not just your physical life, but uh, your your day-to-day life. And what men, when you hear ball and chain, you're hearing men that are having trouble with Ephesians 5.25. When they call their wife ball and chain, they're looking at their marriage as a prison. But the scripture clearly tells us to give your life up for her. You, you wash her feet. Do as Jesus did. We have the perfect model. Or wash the dishes. Or wash the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> if you, Jesus washed the feet of, of the bride so you can wash the dishes for your bride. And I know that our focus is to uh, young adults and some of you are thinking about marriage and some of you may already even be married. Maybe teenagers on this podcast, this is good advice to put into perspective. Men. Young men, please do not call your wife a ball and chain. I, I don't know why. No, that is... It's so hurtful. That is idiocracy. Okay. That he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, we have, a, we have an easy job. We can look to Christ as the model of what we're supposed to be in the home. And ladies have a much harder job because they are doing what is not finished yet, the church. The church has not been glorified. The church has not been raptured out yet. So they are, they are doing a harder job. And I believe that God gave women that job because of the emotional depth that they have that men don't have. Um, I believe that God knew and he said, okay, I'm going to have to give them an exact replica of what they need to do. And I'm not trying to demean men, but there are there is a, a difference, and that's a whole other podcast that I'm not going to get off into right here. So many other podcasts. Yeah. Just in the first yeah. Every time I get on a podcast, I'm seeing more things that need to be taught. So anyway, our the man and woman is a direct reflection of Christ in the church. Now listen to the future fulfilled promise of Ephesians five, the completed version of this. This is the earthly version in Ephesians 5. Now listen to the finished version. Revelations 19, starting with verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife, now look at this, has made herself ready. So there is a, in the Greek, there is a direct, um, a direct imperative that there is a job for the wife. There is something that the wife is supposed to do. She is to make herself ready. There is responsibility on her. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen, listen to this, is the righteousness of saints. Uh, Saints, right here, it just means holy ones or separated ones. To be separated from something, you have to be separate unto something. So it's saints is showing a type of bride there. So in this lesson, I know that was a long runway, but I feel like it's we're building on this foundation of husbands and wives. I want to call this lesson uh, Beauty and the Beast. Remember, we're the beast. Now, as we've talked about in the last two podcasts, we've discussed our animal-like nature and how it is, as the Bible tells us, enmity with God. When mankind was evicted from the garden, they fell from being in relationship with God. This whole thing was a relationship. It was all uh, an image of a man and a woman, uh, Adam and Eve. And then we see that they sold their birthright to a beast. And then all throughout the Bible, we've seen mankind's animal-like nature from murdering, rebellion, contentions, and pure evil. We went from something beautiful, as Psalm 8 says, we were crowned with glory and honor to a beast. And we have fallen. Now, we have to remember that that God never fell. God remained crowned with glory. God remained beautiful. So this has been a, a beauty and beast endeavor where God has chosen to fall in love with something that is a beast. But he cannot marry a beast, as we mentioned in the last episode, because it's against the law. It's, it's an abomination, uh, I believe, as Leviticus tells us. So God did not just want us to recognize our animal-like nature. That is not the intention. It's not for us to come to the revelation of, oh my goodness, my righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm a, I'm a filthy animal. That was not his intention. It was to show us that to, as the Bible says, godly grief bringeth uh, about repentance. It was to draw us to, I don't want to stay this way. Remember the prodigal son where he came to himself in a pig pen. And he said, I don't want, I had it better at daddy's house. And there was something that came over his mind that wanted to go back home. You know, it's not a perfect analogy, but you know, Beauty and the Beast is one of my favorite movies. I, I knew that when I wrote this lesson. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't enough that the Beast recognized that he was a terrible person. He had to learn to love somebody else besides himself, basically, before he could be transformed back into something that was not beastly yeah and that's a good anyway, uh it's not a perfect analogy just for i don't i don't know much about <laughs> the movie beauty and the beast yeah doesn't it end with he turns back into a human yeah yeah spoiler alert yeah spoil oh sorry if you haven't seen beauty and the beast you're about 30 years behind. yeah and we just ruined it for you god was trying to get us back to something far more beautiful because he wanted to be in relationship with us so something far more beautiful than a servant, something far more beautiful than a friend, God wanted to make us a bride. That was his objective. He has called us to come out from being a beast to being a beautiful bride. So beauty had to come to earth 
and preach to a beast to get into relationship. It was a beauty and beast uh, love connection. But Jesus was saying, I cannot marry you as a beast. And we discussed this in the last episode, how John 3, 5, he begins telling uh, Nicodemus how to go from being a beast to something far more beautiful. He was trying to put that glory and honor back on mankind so that he could be in relationship with mankind. And I have a whole new, whole another series of lessons on holiness and why holiness is part of this. And holiness is a lot deeper than what you think. So let's read Isaiah 54, verse 5. It says, For thy maker, talking about God, is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Hosea 2. And by the way, Hosea 2, or Hosea, is all about a man who married a harlot and God kept telling him to go back to her and and then Hosea was like why am I doing this and he said this is my connection with Israel he says and I will betroth thee unto me forever yea I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness there's that word connection that we saw in Revelation that we were to be clothed with fine linen for it's the righteousness of the saints he says I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. That word know there is the intimate uh, word know in Hebrew. You shall be intimate with the Lord. Now, I understand these scriptures are talking to the nation of Israel, and if somebody's on here and you're like a a Revelation or New Testament buff, I do realize, and I will make this, this addendum here, that that is talking about the nation of Israel. But this is why Paul makes this statement, in Ephesians 2. So if you're if you heard Isaiah 54 and Hosea 2 and you're like, well, that's talking to Israel, that's not to the Gentiles. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 12 through 9 or 12, 13, and 19. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's talking to Gentiles, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once uh, afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the cross. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. The household means Israel of God. So because of the cross, what Jesus did on Calvary, it made it available for everybody, which is Acts 2. For this promise is unto you and to all that are far off. So those scriptures in Isaiah 54 and in Hosea 2 do apply to us because of the cross. Right. So in this uh, podcast, in this series, this final lesson, you and I, I want to talk about, you and I have every right to what was promised to the Jews because of the blood of Jesus. It's important to understand that Matthew lists a few non-Jews in the genealogy of Jesus. Why? Why was that so important that he would put in Matthew 1, people in his bloodline that were not Jewish, people like uh, Rahab, individuals like that, Ruth. Ruth. These these women were not Jews. Man, my mind is exploding with so many things that I need to talk about, but I'm going to, we got a lot to cover. Uh, just really quickly. <laughs> no. <laughs> Jewish women are what decides uh, the race of the of the child, not the father. That's in Jewish culture. This is why uh, today Jews don't accept Palestine as their 
as Jews because of um, Ishmael. Of Ishmael, because Hagar was not a Jew. So anyway, that's a whole other topic. But right here, where Jesus started a whole new bride, and we're born out of that bride, so we're in the Commonwealth. Okay, so let's. I know that's not going to make sense right now, but it will when we go through the rest of this late lesson. But we see that there were non-Jewish women. So by Jewish law, Jesus should not have been able to participate in any of the Jewish festivities. But Jesus made a statement that before Abraham was, I am. He was saying before all of this, before um, Ruth, before um, Rahab. Rahab, I was before all of that, so I get to be the uh, deciding factor in this. But why was it so important that the genealogy in Matthew 1 shows that there were non-Jews in there? Because God knew that the promise would have been exclusive to the Jews only unless he allowed Gentile blood into his bloodline. So when Jesus' blood was flowing down the cross, it was not just 100% Jewish blood. It was now Gentile blood mixed in it. Jesus' blood was able to cover everybody because he allowed non-Jews into his bloodline. I thought that was amazing when I read it. So this end time revival at the cross began multi-ethnic right? because of what he allowed into his bloodline. That's why it's so important that the Jews kept clear historical data throughout their, their books. Without that, you and I listening would have no hope unless you're a Jew. But instead, we are one body. Right. And as Paul said, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. All are allowed into this thing now. So for you and I to fully grasp the beauty and wonder of what Jesus did in the New Testament, then we need to have a little bit of background of the Old Testament as well as Jewish tradition as it pertains to marriage because obviously in the old testament they weren't if you like it then you got to put a ring on it there was none of that stuff going on it was there was some of that but it wasn't just like hey i'm going to text this girl for you know a little bit see if we're compatible and then we're going to see how things go we're going to go on a first date things were a little different in jewish culture so to understand the beauty of what jesus was doing as well as to confirm salvation oneness of god to confirm a lot, this lesson will nail down things to where you cannot move them just by studying the Jewish tradition of marriage. So let's jump into it. Now, in the Old Testament, this is one of my favorite uh, things, and Amanda, just time in, chime in anytime you... Oh, I don't know how much I'll be chiming. I know I've heard you talk about this. This is a pretty in-depth, and I know it's a lot of material to cover. This was actually the first study I ever did that pushed me into the uh, realm of learning Hebrew, um, studying it out, and just immersing myself in Hebrew culture because of how rich this particular topic is. This was the first thing I ever studied in Jewish culture. So the first order of business for a Jewish marriage to to be inaugurated was it was a word called the shidukin now the shidukin refers to the first step in the marriage process it's the arrangements preliminary to the legal betrothal 
It was common in ancient Israel of the father of the groom to select a bride for his son. Think of an arranged marriage of sorts. And I know my wife is a history major, so she can she can put a lot of uh, she's got her bachelor's in history, so she can speak a lot to arranged marriages. That kind of evolved out of Jewish culture when it came into what century was it really prevalent? Oh, it's been around for thousands of years. Arranged marriages happen in almost every culture. Well, we first see it uh, in the Bible in Genesis 24, verses 1 through 4. It, in this passage, I'm not going to read it, but if you write it down, you can go and study it out. But Genesis 24, verse 1 through 4, it says, uh, it's in this passage where we see Abraham, he's making arrangements for his son Isaac. Uh, he gets a matchmaker, and we begin to see that he is um, working things out to to prepare a marriage for his son. As the father, this was part of his job. So while the father usually had the responsibility, in Abraham's life it wasn't possible. So it was acceptable in the ancient world for the father to delegate this responsibility to a representative called the Shid Khan, or a marriage broker, or a matchmaker. Uh, to think of a common term that is relevant to us today, think of a wingman, <laughs> somebody who's helping you uh, when you're going out and you don't want to go by yourself because women are terrifying to approach by yourself. Think of that guy, the wingman, who's kind of like the the uh, icebreaker for you. <laughs> That's what this guy was doing for uh, Abraham and Isaac. He was the matchmaker. So what they would do is they would go and they would, in this case, he said, I want you to find somebody for my son. So he went and found uh, this young lady for Isaac. And he began to speak with her father about uh, the, the price to redeem her. Now, it seems archaic when you read this that women were reduced to a cost. That's just, that's poor study and that's poor historical fact. What they were doing was... They didn't have money, so to speak, in those days. It was an agricultural society. So removing somebody from a household was taking one of their their helpers, one of their, their helping hands. So if a woman was to marry another man's son, she would leave her home and go and dwell with them, thus making them one person uh, shy as far as their, their help. So to offset, they would... They would send food they would send cattle something to offset the the loss the, the, loss, of the discrepancy that, of, that of worker that helper that person who contributed right so the the father of the son and the father of the bride would sit down or the matchmaker of the son and the father of the bride would sit down and they would discuss the price what this what this is worth to them i'm i'm losing this help in my in my land so this is what i think it is worth to redeem her from me they would use the word redeem. What would it cost to redeem her? So they would uh, they would write that up. They would write it into a contract. Both parties would sign. It would be sealed, and then she would uh, she would go forth and be with the husband. So this that whole scenario that is the shidukin. Now the next phase I, I kind of touched on a little bit is the ketuva. It means written. This was and still is today the marriage contract. This is what they discussed between both parties, the father of the, the bride and the father of the groom. 
this they would write down you know it's going to cost me uh i will give you a hundredfold of sheep for your daughter they would write it if the father of the bride agreed they would sign it this was the the written contract the groom promises to support his wife to be they would put this into the contract the bride stipulates the contents of her dowry uh, because in the ancient world the firstborn son he got the blessing from the father he got so many things in this culture the second born would get a blessing but he would also get second uh, portion of lands and different things the daughter would get a dowry this was all this was all the young ladies would get they would get a gift from their father and this was all she possessed on earth and i know that that sounds depressing and that sounds archaic but you got to understand how beautiful it is her worth was intrinsic because only a woman could bear children so she wasn't worthless she was actually of the most value because she would give to her husband-to-be or to her father grandchildren or children only she could provide this so there was high high value on her and i know the bible people read it and they try to say well the the bible is sexist and all that stuff that's just again that's that's bad historical context and that's a lack of study into the culture Mm -hmm. there was high value on the women because of their their ability to give sons and the reason why this was such a high value was because their riches were as i said in helping hands so the more sons that they could produce the richer they were so she was absolutely vital to the society so they would write this up she would stipulate the contents of her dowry remember the dowry was all that she had and she would have to give that that one item to her husband if she accepted the marriage and she said yes i want to be in relationship with him she would give her dowry away she in, in essence she gave everything away because it wasn't a bad financial move for her because she knew if i give this one item to him everything he has is now mine as well so it wasn't a bad investment because she got if she married the firstborn son she had access to all that the firstborn son had we see this described in genesis 24 verse 52 and 53 Despite the fact that this was an arranged marriage, it appears that the consent of the bride was very much a part of the Ketuvah in Genesis 24 and 5. So, and again, I'm just going to go through this quickly. You can go and study it and read it. The very next part was the mohair or the bridal payment. This is sometimes called the bride price. It is a gift paid by the groom to the bride's family, but ultimately it belongs to the bride. It would change her status and set her free from her parents' household. We see this illustrated in two biblical examples, Isaac and Rebekah, Genesis 24, verse 53, Jacob and his wives, Genesis 29, verse 20 and 27. In the case of redeeming um, Rachel and Leah, Jacob didn't have finances. He really didn't have a whole lot because he was a stranger in that land. So he paid with years as a helper to Rachel and Leah's father. He paid, as you know the story, seven years. He got tricked. He paid another seven years. And it was as but just a short time because of his love that he had for uh, Rachel. So the bride price in that scenario in Genesis 29 was paid with years. The bottom line of the mohair is it's going to cost to redeem this woman from my household. After that, and this is where it starts getting interesting, and it starts illustrating beautifully what we do in the New Testament. The mikvah, 
or the ritual immersion. This is still practiced today. It's uh, what would happen when both parties agreed on the the price. They they wrote it down in the ketuvah. It was it was written in law. They agreed on it. The groom paid a price to redeem from the father. All of these things were now in play. She gave her dowry to her husband to be. The next part was the mikvah. They would both be separated. They would be ritually immersed in water from head to toe, completely submerged. This was washing them of everything that they were in preparation for who they would be together. In fact, um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I get a lot of emails from different uh, Jewish scholars and different uh, Jerusalem Institute, uh, different things. I get emails and I, I was sent a picture of some young men. They were dancing. It was a young man and it was all of his best men. They all had on their, their you know, their Jewish Shema, or not their Shema, their uh, Talit, which was their prayer shawl. And they were holding hands and they were dancing in a circle. Mm-hmm. And they were rejoicing with the groom, these best men were, because he had just been baptized in preparation for his bride. They were very devout Jews. They were, you know, these, these young men. This was, this is a recent picture. This was, uh, this is still very much practiced by, you know, Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. And these young men were dancing and they were celebrating because this, this young man had found his, his wife, mm-hmm. his bride to be. And they're doing all this in remembrance of what was practiced all these years. And it's so cool because Jewish culture is one of the most, um, it is the oldest culture on the planet today, and they're still practicing what they practiced here in Genesis. It's really neat to see that there's a culture alive in our world today that has been demolished and rebuilt 27 times. And yet here they are, and they're still speaking the language and still practicing things from thousands of years ago. So it was the ritual immersion. They were, it was symbolic of spiritual cleansing in preparation for one another. The next part was the erosin. The word erosin means betrothal. It is the period um, where they would separate and they were, they were sanctifying. It's, that word kind of plays into the kiddushim and it means sanctified or set apart. This word really defines the purpose of the betrothal period. It is a time in which the couple are to set time, set aside time to prepare themselves to enter into the covenant of marriage. Now, it's at this point that they are legally married. It's at this point, okay? They're, this is where it's different than our culture. This would be a type of engagement that you'd rescind. Mm-hmm. But they were legally married to, if they wanted to separate at this point, they had to get um, what, what is called a get or a legal divorce at this point even though they have not done their vows they have not gone before their peers and friends this place right here they were bound together at engagement so the jewish understanding of the betrothal has always been much stronger than our modern understanding of an engagement Uh, nowadays you know i hear people joke all the time you know i don't see a wedding band on her so you can still flirt well that doesn't fly in the hebrew culture you were legally married at this point, at engagement. The betrothal, as I said, was so binding that the couple would need a religious divorce in order to annul the contract. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1-4. through 4. This option, however, was only available to the husband. 
as the wife had no say in any divorce proceeding. This point will be very important when we view the spiritual implications a little later in this lesson. So after that is the matan or the bridal gift. Following this betrothal ceremony, the groom would return to his home to fulfill his obligations during the betrothal. Remember, they were separated and they were being sanctified at this time. Just prior to leaving, he would give his wife-to-be a matan natom, or a bridal gift. This is a pledge of his love for her. Its purpose was to be a reminder to his bride that during their days of separation, it would remind her of his love for her, that he was thinking of her, and that he would return to receive her as his wife. He would give this gift. It could have been anything. It could have been a family heirloom. It could have been... Uh, literally anything it could have been a pile of coins it could have been you know a literal ring as we would view it today it was in many cultures this would have been called a comfort gift because the reason why the husband had to fulfill his obligations is because the the later laws in israel said that the man or the groom had to build a house better than the one the bride was living in so while he was away and he was working on this house and he was you know, adding rooms to it or could you know, whatever he was doing, building an entire new house, he had to build it better and he didn't know how long it would take or how long he would be gone. So before leaving, he would give the matan and he would say, I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know how long this will take. If it's a year, two years, 10 years, whatever it is, I have to fulfill my obligations. So while I'm gone, look at this gift it will bring you comfort and you will know that I am coming back for you. This was literally what they would do. And as you're listening, I'm sure your brain is making connections as I'm speaking. The wife was not to squander the matan. When times got rough, when there was a famine, she wasn't to sell it to, to get anything out of it. She was to hold on to it by faith that her husband would return. It is most likely that the parable of the woman sweeping her house looking for the lost coin, that that was in fact her matan. And she was saying, I have to have all ten coins. Nine will not do because it will look like to my husband that I squandered it. So I am going to make sure I have all of it here. And she tore her house apart in that parable looking for that lost coin. Jesus describes her passionately looking for it and then rejoicing when she found it and calling all of her neighbors to rejoice with her for finding that coin. Now, in certain cultures, the best man of the groom would move next door to the bride and he would hold on to the ketuvah and he would hold it up and he would remind her of the obligations. If she got frustrated, if she got lonely, he would just be there to comfort her and to be a representative of his best friend, his uh, groom or her groom. So the couple's responsibilities was, as I mentioned, the husband was to build the house, add rooms to it, make it better than what she lived in. The bride's responsibility was to keep herself busy in preparation for the wedding day. Specifically uh, to her wedding garments, she would work on those. She would sew them and prepare them. She would uh, prepare the feasts. She would invite her neighbors her job was very strategic. She had to make sure that she was keeping her faith. She was not getting frustrated and wanting to lose all hope. She had to have faith in something she did not see presently. It was a very, it was a highly volatile, emotional 
um, place for her. Yeah, not that much different than weddings today, then, in that context. Yeah, think Bridezilla. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just thinking, typically, and, and you know, the bride does most of the planning. And also, think of, um, think of the, the bride's... Uh, I don't want to use this word. I'm trying to think of the right word. But think of the emotional state of the bride, because this is the day that this little girl's been preparing for her whole life. She wants it to be perfect. And we're not that far off with what we're studying here. Because that's that feeling that young ladies have for her wedding day, there's nothing wrong with that. Now translate that over to preparing yourself for the return of the Lord for his bride. Right. You want it to be perfect. Paul would say striving for perfection. So... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up a lot of these, these things that we're talking about and show how Jesus fulfilled all of them. So the culminating steps in the process of the Jewish wedding was, was building up to this, this wedding day where the husband came back. Now, the final steps in the wedding process is called the nisuin, or the word commons from the Hebrew verb nasa, which means to carry. This is a very graphic description as the bride would be waiting for her groom to come. She had been patiently waiting. She had kept her faith. She had held on to her promise. And she would see her groom coming down the road as the best man would literally blow a trumpet. And he would cry, behold, the bridegroom comes. And he would come in and she would run out her door, eagerly anticipating love of her life, scooping her up in his arms, picking her up, and then carrying her, nasa, carry her over uh, the threshold of their new home that he had been preparing. The period of the betrothal where they were separated and working in their own separate regards, this was a time of great anticipation as the bride waited for the arrival of her betrothed. One of the unique features of the biblical Jewish wedding was the time of the groom's arrival. It was to be kind of a surprise uh, the bride took the betrothal seriously, expecting that at the end of the year-long period, or however long it was, she would she did not know the approximate timing, but she would she would know about when he would be coming back because she would probably hear from the best man. But the exact hour or day was uncertain. This was left only to this the the groom who was coming back. So she would be waiting and she would probably sit by her window every day looking down the road. Is he coming today? Is today the day? I know this is about the right season of when he should be coming back, but is this the hour that he will return? And she would probably hold her promise near and dear, keeping her faith that he loves her enough to return. So when the bridegroom would come, the wedding would begin. They've been legally betrothed, but now is the wedding day. Since the time of his arrival was a surprise, the bride and her bridal party were always to be ready. Now, this is the background of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, 1-13. Don't have time to, to expound on that. Go and read it. But it was customary for one of the groom's party to go ahead of the bridegroom, leading the way to the bride's house, and shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. This would be followed by the sounding of the shofar. At the sounding of this trumpet or the shofar, the entire wedding processional would go through the streets of the city to the bride's house. The groomsmen would again set up what was called a hoopah. Uh, it was 
and I don't have time to talk about all that, but nowadays it's the talit and they stretch it over. It's four corners is what uh, talit means. It's, it's, uh, it's the prayer shawl, but they would, they would get underneath this, this hoopah or the prayer shawl stretched over them. And they would declare their, uh, today in our modern weddings, it would be our, our vows. This is what they would do today. Uh, the couple would say a blessing over a cup of wine. The ceremony finalized the promise and the vows. The pinnacle of this joyful celebration was the marriage supper. It was much more than just a sit-down dinner for all the guests. It's interesting that Jesus' first miracle would be turning water to wine. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing that he would do was hanging on a cross before coming back for his bride would be turning, um, his blood would be mixed with water. So the first, his first miracle would be pointing to his last miracle because it was on that cross where he was pierced in his side and out came blood and water. And what we're seeing there when you, when you understand Hebrew culture is just like the first Adam out of his side came Eve out of Jesus' side on the cross came the church, the new bride. So his first miracle was a wedding. His last miracle was a wedding and his final miracle in this whole culmination of humanity will be a wedding right all of this was revolving around a wedding day it included in in the hebrew culture it included seven full days of food music dance celebration you can see that being lived out in john chapter 14 verse 10 through 12 now after the festivities the husband was free to bring his bride to their new home to live together as husband and wife in the full covenant of marriage and this is where they would consummate their marriage. Now listen to, knowing all of that, listen to how Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single piece of this. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, and that he did perfectly. So in order to fulfill the custom of the Shidduchim, God knew that in order to redeem his bride, he would have to be a father in order to fulfill the duty of choosing a bride, his church. But he also had to be a son in order to marry this bride. So this was never a matter of him being three different people, but rather him fulfilling the law. Because we see in the Old Testament that he looked around and saw no one else, so he swore by himself. So we see that he is alone in heaven. So how does God Almighty look at the church? He, he looked and chose her, but how does he marry her? Because he can't marry her as a father. He had to become a son. Right. This had, didn't have anything to do with three individual people. This had everything to do with him fulfilling this law. So... He, like Abraham, he chose a representative to choose the bride for Isaac. Who did he choose? He chose John the Baptist, who was preaching repentance. He was the one pre preparing the bride. This is what John was doing. He was like the representative between uh, Abraham and Isaac. So it's really cool what we're seeing here. Next, the ketubah. Remember the word ketubah means written. It was the contract which declared the groom would support the wife-to-be, and it declared the stipulations of the bride's dowry. This for you and I is the word of God. Your Bible is a marriage contract. 
It tells us the stipulations of our dowry. What is our dowry as a, as a bride? Our will. Our will. That is the only thing that you and I possess. That is it. Our choice is was, it was given to us by the Father. And he said, I'm not going to make you do anything. This is 100% your choice. This is all you have. And that is the very thing that he asked that we give away. How do we give it away? Repentance and dying to self. It's the only thing on this planet that's ours. And we give it away. Why do we give it away? With earnest expectation that when we enter relationship, covenant relationship with Jesus, we get all that is his. For he is the firstborn, the Bible said, of many brethren. The firstborn son got everything. We're marrying up. <laughs> right. It's, it's a good choice to give away at repentance. It's very possible uh, that when you're reading into the context of Scripture that the alabaster box that was broken and the oil that was poured out of it was Mary's dowry. Ironically, the woman who broke this dowry was a harlot. Jesus then declares, let this be done in remembrance. What was she doing? If this was her dowry, she had a revelation of who Jesus was. And he said, don't stop her. This is beautiful what she's done for me today. She has anointed me. She has given me everything that she has. She has. And she's declaring she doesn't want to be in relationship with anybody else anymore. She wants to be in relationship with the highest being on the, in the cosmos, Jesus, the, the Father and the Son. Next was the mohair or the bridal payment. The bridal, bridal payment was to be given to the bride's parents to free her or redeem her from the parent's rule or ownership. Remember, you and I are born of sin. We talked about that in the last two podcasts. Mm. So Jesus came and he paid a price that no one could top. He gave his life as a ransom. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. He's saying give yourself away. And in your spirits, which are God's. Right. So Jesus came and he said, I'm going to pay a price that no other person will top. This is what it will cost to redeem her from sin, which has conceived mankind now. You're an animal. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to redeem you from your animal-like father. And I'm going to bring you into my household. And they will know that you're of my household. How? By my name. Which leads us to the next part, the mikvah, the ritual immersion. Matthew 3.13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Why did Jesus get baptized if there was no sin in him and the beast was not his father? He was, there was a, a miraculous conception where the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary showing us that he was of heavenly descent. He had right. no sin in him. What was he doing then when he got baptized? He was following culture. He was fulfilling law. He was preparing for a bride right, right. here. He was giving them something recognizable. That's right. That they could understand. It was an outward sign. And everybody looked and they were saying, who's he getting ready to marry? I don't see a woman here. Jesus had his eyes set on the church right here in advance. Why, why is it so important that they baptized in the name? Because Jesus was saying, I'm redeeming you from the household of your father, which is sin, and I'm bringing you into my household. And sin will no longer be able to come and take you back because of the name that is on you. You are now mine. Think of you took on my name when you and I got married. Mm -hmm. So now when you, when you uh, 
I'm trying to use something else besides a check illustration because that's we've used that to death. But you have power of attorney with me because of the name. You have access to everything that is mine as my wife because you have my last name. We have a marriage contract saying we have fulfilled this and you have taken on my name. Everything that is mine is yours and everything that is yours is mine. We became one under the banner of the Holloway name. Mm -hmm. We became one. That is crucial to understand that you and I are now one under the banner of a name. This is why we baptize in the name of Jesus. This is why it's all throughout the New Testament. So what is the irusin, the next process after the ritual immersion? 1 Peter 1 verse 15, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, this verse 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Remember, the Eurosin means sanctification or set apart. When we repented of our sins, we gave away our choice. When we were baptized, we took on his name and we were filled with the promise. What you and I do is we now say, I am in no way, shape or form from here going forth. Am I ever going to be in relationship with sin again? The beast nature, it's enmity to my husband to be. I'm not a beast. He's transferring me from a beast to beauty he is he's trying to turn us into as you mentioned earlier the beauty and the beast we we're becoming like unto Mm -hmm. so that we can we're going back to the garden we're becoming the bride we were supposed to be so that we can go into relationship the way we do that is we set ourselves apart there's so much uh conflict and there's so much discussion on what what is sin? What is, or not what is sin, but what is holiness? It's abstaining from anything unrighteous. So you should be able to read the Bible and look and say, this isn't righteous. This isn't good. This is enmity to my groom. Would my groom approve? And when you think on those terms, you'll notice that probably a lot of habits will have to die. I know me and Amanda, and I won't discuss things that we've gotten rid of, things because I don't want to pigeonhole somebody and say, oh, I've got to do that. You need to seek those things out and seek to please the groom. But we went through our lives and we started getting rid of things. We were separating ourselves. Yeah. I want to be in perfect relationship with him. So that's the sin for us as we, we set apart ourselves through holiness. The matan, the bridal gift. Finally, in Luke 24, just prior to, Uh, to going to his homeland jesus going home to prepare a place for his bride he promises a bridal gift and i'm going to read this one luke 24 44 then he said to them these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures remember he's speaking to jewish people and they're understanding what's going on here and he said to them thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He tells, he said, there is a promise. And when they heard that word promise, they were probably thinking of these bride and groom concepts that they've been raised in and they were immersed in this culture and they're thinking, okay, he's going to give us, 
a bridal gift. And it's just after this that he says, I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. Right. In my father's house are many rooms, is what the Greek says. And I'm going to I'm going to prepare that place for you. I, I'm going to work on it, and then when it's done, I'm coming back for you. But while I'm away, I'm sending you a promise in verse 49. Then a preacher steps up in Acts 2, and he performs a wedding ceremony. That's what we're intended to see in Acts 2. There's so much Jewish stuff going on in Acts 2, it's mind-boggling. I don't have nearly enough time to discuss that. But there's we're intended to see a wedding taking place. Right. Where a group of brides, a, a beastly brides come up and they say, what do we do? We, we, we see you've preached to us that there's sin in our lives. What must I do? Mm-hmm. And Peter says, you know that one thing that you have given to you by the Father, sin? You need to give that away. How do we give away our choice? Die. Die to self. Repent. Turn away. Turn away from choosing your own ways. Then be ritually immersed as a bride. Take on his name, and they baptize everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. That's, that's what's taking place. They were given the promise at that moment, and they were to hold on to this comfort until the return of their Lord and Savior. This is so profound, and so many things are connecting in our minds when we see this. So what are we preparing for as brides that were once beasts who have died to our will, baptized in his name, baptized in his name, filled with promise? What are we doing now? We're, we're holy. We're separating ourselves from the world daily. We're striving for perfection. But what are we looking forward to? We don't right. do all of that for no reason. We're looking forward to something, right? Yep. As a bride who spends all of her time preparing for her wedding day, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But there's something she's looking forward to that special day. This is the Nisuin, the final step in the wedding process. The word which comes from the verb Nasa, which means to carry. This graphic description is what Jesus is literally going to do. When that final trumpet sounds, declaring that the bridegroom is coming from eternity into time to take us with him back into eternity, he is going to nasa us, carry us out of this life, bound by time, bound by pain, bound by sickness, and he is going to carry us into that place. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then we will enter the marriage supper. According to Revelations 19 and 6, and it says, I heard, and this is the scripture we read at the beginning, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And then it goes down and says, in verse 9, He saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. What he did in his earthly ministry is he made us something better than a beast. He transformed us into a bride because he would not marry an animal. He wanted to marry what was in his image. So how did he do it? 
He followed the law. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He had to be a father to choose a bride. He had to be a son to marry a bride. He had to send himself as the comforter to comfort the bride while he was away. Right. He did all of that to transform us back into his image. So if he went through all of that work, why would he not come back? That is our blessed hope. That is our blessed assurance. That is what we look forward to. That is what over the past, uh, I would say nine years since I've studied this, over the past nine years, I have filtered every single decision I make through this. Uh, When I pray, I go into a chamber and I'm wanting to practice what heaven's going to be like when I'm with my groom. When I make decisions of how I'm going to live and what I'm going to do, where, how I'm going to um, do my day-to-day life. I ask myself, is this going to please my groom? Well, like you said, uh, the bride's job was to make her dress and keep it clean and, and uh, prepare, prepare food and invite guests and things like that. I mean, that is us as uh, disciples of Christ and as the body of the church, you know, calling people into the marriage supper, you're supposed to be basically making little brides or guests, however you want to look at it. And then obviously our dress is our person, ourself. Yeah. We're not putting back on the clothes of the beast. Right. That we were Adam and Eve were clothed with basically. Right. We're, we're clothing ourselves with glory and honor. Right. And how you break that down, like he said, uh, holiness, righteousness. Um, I know there's many, many teachings on that, but he, you know, he talked about that as being a very deep topic, and you need to read and study that out. Well, and I'll I want to talk about this a little bit. I've used this illustration before uh, in terms of holiness. And I don't want to get off into all that. There's very clear, defined lines in Bible of what holiness is and what holiness isn't. What I want to do is I want to put everything into a category for for you to explore holiness yourself. And I want to put it into this whole marriage category. So the way I want to do this is I give this illustration. When I was on our first date with Amanda, I remember if I would have sat down on our first uh, date which was at an Italian restaurant where I spilled oil on myself from the little oil dispenser deal. If I would have been on that first date, if I would have looked at my wife and I would have said, or she wasn't my wife then, if I would have looked at my wife-to-be and said, okay, so this is our first date. Here's what I want from you. Pancakes every day. Pancakes every single day. Now, this is my favorite color. This is what I expect you to, uh, these are the color shoes I want you to wear every single day. This is how I really like your hair to be done. So I want you to wear your hair a certain way. Uh, There's also the fact that, you know, I expect, you know, so much affirmation in a day. So I'm going to need you to give me that. And I just went down this laundry list of things that probably, unless she was in an abusive relationship, and that's the way she was with her father, and that's what she would kind of want or be looking for in another man, her husband, but if she was in a healthy relationship, there probably wouldn't be a second date. No. It would. She would probably look at me and say, you're a psycho. So what we did is we courted. She saw that I, I was genuinely interested in her. 
I saw that she was genuinely interested in me. We talked, we texted, we did all the things. We fell in love with one another. I proposed. The rest is history. Here we are tonight doing a podcast together as a married couple. Today, though, today, I don't have to sit down with a list of things. Now, my wife and I, we, we, we're constantly reevaluating because marriages and relationships do grow through different seasons. There are new things that are added onto your marriage that maybe not have been there five years ago. Just uh, help me think of an example with that if you can. But you go through different seasons uh, of life and you're, you're reevaluating, you're retalking, and you're, you're adding things to your marriage that, that need to be. Hey, there's things that, yeah, we didn't talk about. I always use the trash can example that, you know, I never asked you to take out the trash until five years into our marriage because I just expected it to be done. And I didn't know you liked, you did not like chicken or at least not just baked chicken. I like chicken. I don't like baked chicken. I'm sorry. Slimy. He likes fried chicken. He's a Southern boy. I like my chicken fried. And I'm a northern girl, and I don't fry chicken. But there was, there's constant reevaluating. But the point I'm making is today, I don't, I don't begrudge anything. In fact, I look for things. When I go to my wife, I, I, I'll ask her, what can I do to please you? I want a good marriage. She will come to me and say, what can I do to please you? I'll what? make you chorizo potatoes for breakfast. Yeah, this morning she asked me, said, what would you like for breakfast? And I said, oh, I know what I want, but it takes too long to make it. I don't want to have, well, I don't want you to have to do that. And she told me, she said, no, I want to do it. And she made me my favorite breakfast this morning. That's, that's what a healthy relationship does. They seek to please one another. So when I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading it from the perspective of a, of a bride seeking to please her groom. I'm not going through there looking for things to not do. The second you approach Scripture looking for reasons to not do things, you've become a, uh, a type of, um, what was the word I just used? You've, you've, you're now showing that there is a dysfunction. It's a dysfunctional bride, and you're viewing the Father in a very distorted light. I mean, think of the parable of the talents, how the man who buried his talent he said, I knew that, they were, that thou were a hard man. Mm-hmm. Well, how can a hard man give you eight years worth of income, which was the worth of a talent? That's not a hard man. You obviously didn't know him. So there's, there's dysfunction. If you're going through the Bible looking for things to do less of, there's dysfunction. But when you're healthy, you're looking through the Bible and saying, how can I please him? And you start seeing things, oh, I want to give that away. I want to stop doing that. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to look at that anymore because I want to please him. And here's the, the, the way to do it. Court him. Pray to him. Let him talk to you. Let, let him show you how much he loves you. And when you realize how much he loves you, then you will say, yes, I, I'll do anything for him. Mm-hmm. That's how we go from a beast to something beautiful. But you can't put this into a a list of things you can't put this into a, a you know a list of do's and don'ts it's so much more beautiful than that look for ways to please him whatever that is please him read the bible i don't want to discuss that in this i'm gonna let your pastor do those things but read the bible for yourself and say this would please him 
If I did more of this, this would please him. If I stopped doing that, it would please him. If I did this less, it would please him. If I stopped watching that, it would please him. I just want to please him. Right. And when you please him, he is pleased with you. That sounds so simple, but it's so profound. Well, um, you know, in a marriage, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, I hate to use it would please me because we don't talk like that to each other. But, you know, if you were constantly binging on uh, something in the evenings and that was our only free time to connect, it would please me if you chose one night to say, you know what, click, I'm going to shut this off or I'm going to shut off my phone or whatever and let's talk. You know, let's just talk tonight, you know, and the, I feel like that pretty directly applies to our relationship with God. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a great example. That, you know, God's just kind of sitting there like, it would please me if you would just click and shut that off and just talk to me. It's not that that's evil or I don't allow it, but that, you know, sometimes you choose me first. Yeah. Yeah, this, um, I've used this, this statement before. God does not have favorites, but he does have intimates. He has those that are above all else in their life. They have given it all away. Their choice is no longer their own. They've offered their body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in him, because we were bought with a price. So present your bodies, the Bible says. So they're, they're striving above all else to please him. Those people are intimate with him. It's not that God has favorites, but he just knows some a little better than the other because they've allowed themselves to be known by knowing more of him through prayer, through separating things. You know, leaving, and I'll just say this, leaving a Netflix marathon for a prayer marathon to know him. Mm -hmm. God doesn't favor that person. He just knows them better because they chose to die to self and to be known of him. And there's examples. I mean, you know, there's so many examples throughout the Bible of that. Abraham. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave it on this and we'll end the podcast right here. This is relevant and it's on my mind. It's fresh because I, every Monday I have a, I have a conference call with a, uh, a Jewish guy. I've been learning Hebrew through this guy in uh, just a couple of Mondays ago, he brought this up, the story of Abraham. And there's a story. It's, it's not in the Bible, but it's in the, it's in the Talmud, which is a commentary of the Bible. And it's, it's a fun story. You know, it's not the infallible word of God, but it is fun. The story goes that Abraham one day went to his house and his, his father was a um, Terah. Terah was his father. He made false images and he sold them, these false gods. And Abraham went in one day and he said, what in the world? These aren't even real. Why are we doing this? And he took a hammer and he smashed every one of these uh, false gods. And when Terah came home and he saw that all of the, the little images that he made were destroyed, he said, who did this? And Abraham keenly put the hammer in one of the stone gods' hands and he said, the stone god smashed them all. And Terah said, what do you mean? He's a, he's a rock. He can't he can't swing this hammer and break all these false gods, or he can't break all these images. And Abraham spoke up and he said, precisely, then why are we worshiping something that can't even do anything? And the, the question is, this little story is, uh, 
where the Jews teach that that was why God chose Abraham above everybody else because he made a decision that day that he is not going to serve the gods of his fathers. And that's in the Bible. He chose not to serve the God of his fathers. And he, he decided that day, um, I'm going to do this for myself. That's literally what the Hebrew word is in the, in the, the Torah. He says that I'm going to do this for me. I'm leaving Ur for me. This is what's good for me. And God gave him a covenant. He gave him a promise. It wasn't that he favored Abraham. Abraham just made a decision and he chose to be intimate with God. And God said, okay, if you'll be intimate with me, I'll be intimate with you. And there was a promise that we're still seeing that we're reaping the benefits of today because of that decision thousands of years ago. You and I have been grafted in because of what Abraham did that day. Whether you believe that's a true story or not, doesn't matter. The bottom line is he made a choice and he did leave Ur. Here's the thing is God chose him because he chose God. That is available to every single person who listens to this podcast. He will be as intimate with you as you, as you are willing to be intimate with him. So I'll leave it with the, the words of Joshua in 20, Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we're not going to build up images. We're going to serve the Lord. And that's the end of this series. Let's not be a beast. Let's be a bride. Let's become something beautiful and let's choose him every single day. Be looking forward to next week in the next podcast, the Day of the Lord series. Looking forward to talking to you then. Peace out.